Showtime is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, state lawmakers were busy yesterday with Republicans pushing forward several bills just before the governor's State of the State address. A Fair Elections activist explains one of those bills, which seeks to preempt the redistricting process in the Supreme Court. And in the second half, an inside look at life as a plow driver, some headlines from 55 years ago, and more dull weather ahead. I'll give you every possible detail. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. In yesterday's State of the State address, uh, Governor Tony Evers announced that the Pelican River Forest Project is moving forward. Initially, the governor included $4 million in his 2023-2024 budget to purchase nearly 70,000 acres of property in the North Woods. But the legislature's budget committee blocked stewardship funds for the project in April. Now the purchase can go through, thanks to funding from a private foundation and the U.S. Forest Service. That's despite a law firm's unsuccessful attempt to argue that local governments were opposed to taking the land off of tax rolls. Governor Evers said yesterday that the Forest Service Forest Service's contribution will be allowed and those 70,000 acres will be designated for conservation efforts and public use. Wisconsin and Minnesota will receive more than a billion dollars jointly to build a new bridge connecting Duluth, Minnesota and Superior, Wisconsin. The new structure will replace the 60-year-old Blatnick Bridge, which carries more than 33,000 vehicles each day, and as well as freight trains. In addition to the billion dollars from the feds, each state will contribute $400 million towards the project. It's expected that by the end of construction in 2027, the project will cost $2 billion. The bridge is operated and maintained by the Minnesota and Wisconsin Departments of Transportation. Union membership in Wisconsin increased in 2023, reports the Capital Times, using numbers released yesterday by the U.S. Department of Labor. Those numbers show the biggest jump in 10 years, an increase of about 18,000 unionized jobs in the state. And the rate of expanding union membership in 2023 was the highest since 1989, reports the paper. Before the enactment of Act 10, nearly a decade and a half ago, union membership was over 20%. At the time, Wisconsin had the fifth highest rate of membership in the nation. Two candidates remain in the race to take on Representative Derek Van Orden in western Wisconsin. Van Orden, now serving his first term, narrowly defeated State Senator Brad Paff in 2022. The National Democratic Party was widely criticized for not supporting PAF, who many believe might have won if he had received national funding. The two Democrats now looking to unseat Van Orden are State Representative Katrina Shankland of Stevens Point and Rebecca Cook of Eau Claire. Cook was a candidate in the 2022 primary and came in second. Shankland has been in the State Assembly for 10 years. Cook was raised on a dairy farm in Eau Claire and leads a nonprofit business finance organization. 
She was recently endorsed by a political action committee favoring more centrist Democrats. Shanklin is considered to be the leading environmentalist among Assembly Democrats. Van Orden has found himself the subject of a number of self-inflicted rounds of bad publicity, including creating a late-night disturbance in the Capitol Rotunda. He was also the first Wisconsin member of Congress to endorse former President Donald Trump. Last night, the city council filled a vacant seat for Madison's District 19 after receiving four applications to fill the position. John Uguerre is the new alder for the Far West Side District, located next to Middleton and including neighborhoods like Spring Harbor, Hilldale, and Old Sock Road. In his application statement, Uguerre pointed to priorities like affordable housing and reducing greenhouse gases. He listed experience with finances as an asset in confronting negotiations for the next difficult budget and says it will be very unlikely for him to run for election. His term will end in spring 2025. Uguerre comes aboard after the departure of Kristen Slack, who resigned her seat earlier this month, citing an urgent family illness. Uguerre ran and lost against Slack for the seat last year. She received about double the vote with about 4,100, and Uguerre at about 2,100 votes. Uh, Gierre is an engineer and Uguerre is an engineer and consultant on sustainable construction projects and currently serves on the city's sustainability committee. A total of 236 traffic citations were issued in Dane County on two days in December as a result of a collective effort between 22 different local, county, and state law enforcement agencies. 52 of those citations were for speeding, while most of the other citations were for inattentive or erratic driving. Although the stated purpose of the coordinated campaign was to reduce the incidence of driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol, only seven drivers were so arrested for being intoxicated. That's about 3% of the total. In the course of the two-day campaign, 21 drivers were arrested for other criminal offenses. A Madison chocolatier, a Madison chef, and a Madison meal kit business are being recognized as semi-finalists in a prestigious food award. The prestigious James Beard Foundation announced the semi-finalists earlier today. Sayovata Edari, founder of Cocova on East Washington, has been named one of 20 semi-finalists in the category of pastry chef or baker. She has won over 30 awards in the international chocolate competitions. This is her first national recognition. She and Sean Farr of the East Side's Mint Mark have both been named regional semifinalists for the Best Chef of the Midwest category. Farr has previously been named a semifinalist by the competition. And Pasture and Plenty, a meal kit service and catering business on University Avenue, was named a semifinalist in the Outstanding Hospitality category. One chef in Milwaukee and one on Madeline Island, who focuses on indigenous foods and cuisine, were named national semifinalists. Finalists are expected to be named in April. And those were the evening's headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. For his sixth time, Governor Tony Evers gave his annual State of the State address yesterday naming his top priorities and declaring 2024 the year of the worker. That comes amidst a flurry of activity in the Republican-led legislature. 
Continuing some of the last year's most high-profile fights with the governor over abortion, over child care, taxes, and maps. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the details. As we enter 2024, our state has never been in a better fiscal position than we are today. Better than last year, better than when I took office, and better than any year in Wisconsin, 176 years of statehood. Yesterday, Governor Tony Evers gave his sixth State of the State address. He touched on a number of issues, from workforce development to contraception access to conservation efforts. In his address, Evers announced that the Pelican River Project will be moving forward. In partnership with the Biden administration and the Conservation Fund, we've approved the conservation easement for the forest's remaining acres to protect the forest for generations of future Wisconsinites to use and enjoy. That comes just months after state Republicans blocked funds from the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program in an attempt to stop the easement purchase. Governor Evers also listed three workforce priorities for the coming year and asked for support from state Republicans to make it happen. We're working every day to make sure our workforce, economy, and infrastructure are ready to meet the needs of the 21st century. Evers says his priorities are to address the child care crisis, expand paid family leave, and invest in public education. Evers also stated that he plans to expand folks' access to contraception and emergency contraception. Those covered under Badger Care Plus, he says, would be allowed to obtain the meds without a doctor's prescription and at no out-of-pocket cost. Meanwhile, legislative Republicans are attempting to push through a series of bills on their own priorities, restricting abortion, giving tax cuts, and proposing legislative maps they've refused to sign off on before. Evers has promised to veto a new Republican bill that would ban most abortions after 14 weeks. The bill would only be enacted if also approved by a majority of voters in this April's election. But elections officials say the deadline has passed to put any new referendum on the spring ballot. Despite that, the bill is scheduled for tomorrow's floor session. Meanwhile, yesterday, Republicans proposed a tax cut for the third time. The largest cut would expand the second tax bracket to $150,000 for married couples filing jointly. Other tax breaks focus on childcare costs and retirement income. This time, top Republicans in the legislature say they've introduced each bill individually in order to allow the governor to pick and choose. A spokesperson for the governor told Wisconsin Public Radio that the office would review the proposals. Evers has vetoed previous tax cut bills, including one that would trim taxes for the state's highest earners and another that would have cut taxes for families making about $400,000 or less. And just hours before Evers' address last night, Republicans in the state Senate approved a redistricting bill, even as the question races to the liberal-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court and a February 1st deadline for consultants to review proposals. The bill in the legislature proposes districts that largely mirror the maps Evers has proposed in the case before the court. The bill does, however, tweak some district lines to protect Republican incumbents. A similar bill passed the state assembly today and heads to the governor. Also today, Governor Evers said he would veto the maps, arguing that they are still gerrymandered. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said in a news conference today that Republicans have met Democrats 99% of the way there. Up next, we'll have more details on Wisconsin's chaotic redistricting developments. Reporting for WORT News, 
I'm Faye Parks. MAP proposals in the state Supreme Court, a rushed bill in the legislature, what is going on with Wisconsin's voting maps, and what happens next? Jay Heck is the executive director of Common Cause in Wisconsin, a nonpartisan citizens lobby that advocates for election ethics and reform. He gave WORT news producer Faye Parks the rundown earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Jay. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I think it's an understatement to say that a lot is going on right now. Can you give us the bird's eye view of Wisconsin's redistricting process? (laughs) Well, you know, after literally 13 years of absolutely no action on the part of the majority Republicans in the legislature, we've seen a flurry, a flurry of activity really dating back from last September. But this was all after the Wisconsin Supreme Court majority switched from a very conservative, I would say anti-voter majority to a, to a pro-voter majority. Of course, as the public is well aware of by now, there was a lawsuit to overturn the 2021-2022 redistricting process, which was undertaken by the Republicans just as it was in 2011 and made Wisconsin one of the most egregiously gerrymandered, partisan, unfair states in the country. Wisconsin is a is basically a 50-50 state in statewide elections, presidential elections. We've had presidential elections since 2000. Four of the six have been under 26,000 votes out of three and a half million cast. So we're a 50-50 state. But the legislature, first in 2011 and then again two years ago, created legislative districts that are so skewed in favor of the Republicans that they barely ever move, regardless of the outcome of statewide elections in Wisconsin. So that's the bird's eye view. And then the Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a decision right before the Christmas holiday overturning the existing state legislative district maps because they're unconstitutional. And they asked for new maps to be submitted which the deadline was about a week ago. And so now they're considering new maps for 2024 and 2026. And this has precipitated a great deal of activity in the legislature. The Republicans are very fearful of losing control of the redistricting process altogether, and most certainly of losing their majorities, their their skewed majorities in both the Assembly and the State Senate. And so they came forward with legislation in the Senate, which passed yesterday, and they're coming forward with legislation today to basically provide new maps. And the unfortunate thing about these new maps is that nobody knows what they look like, except for the Republicans. There was no public hearing, no airing on any of the new proposals that they're putting forward. And while they have claimed that they're very similar to the maps that Governor Evers submitted just last week, there are quote-unquote tweaks, (laughs) which are such that, again, the public doesn't know because we can't see them, that would probably ensure that the Republicans have solid control. So what we're seeing is a lot of legislative activity. It's hard to know exactly where it's all going to end up. This stuff all passed in about 45 minutes in the state Senate yesterday with everybody being blind and nobody really knowing what was going on. And the Republicans are poised to bring similar maps, slightly different tweaks to the assembly today. You know, people are have suspicions about what's happening in the Capitol. They have every right to and, uh, and should, should expect that this may not be a great product. 
I understand that you really haven't had a chance to review the maps, but the central claim from state Republicans is that their proposal mostly differs from Governor Evers' proposal to the Supreme Court in order to make sure that fewer fewer incumbents uh, will be facing off in the upcoming elections. Why would right. that be favorable from their perspective? Well, the problem, of course, is when you have gerrymandered skewed maps, you have many more Republican legislators than Democrats because the, the districts have been drawn to favor Republicans. And if you're trying to make the maps fairer or you're trying to correct unconstitutional imbalances that some of the districts have, the court is looking at maps now that reduce the number of Republican seats. And in order for that to occur, there's going to be incumbent Republicans that would have to face off against each other if they want to continue in office in in primaries. So that is what the Republicans hate, the fact that they're going to lose, you know, their huge 65-34 majority in the state assembly and 20-11 majority in the state Senate. That would necessitate in reducing that to have fair maps, some of those incumbents facing each other. And of course, no Republican incumbent wants to have a challenge. So, so that's why there's that's why the Republicans have made some tweaks to the governor's maps. But let's be clear. If you make those kinds of tweaks, they are no longer the governor's maps. They're no longer the maps that were submitted to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and accepted last week. These are further forms of Republican gerrymandering. At the end of the day, you're going to try to say, look, we, we came very close to the governor, but they're very carefully making sure that they're going to maintain sizable majorities in both chambers. And the whole process is being rushed through in a period of, you know, 48 hours. So from that standpoint, it's utterly unacceptable. And my guess is that the maps that finally emerge today, if they pass them in the, in the Republican-controlled assembly, I assume that they would be able to do that are not going to be the governor's maps. And the Republican, Robin Voss, at a press conference earlier today said as much. He said, we're making changes. Just as Senator Devin Lemahue, the Senate Majority Leader, Republican Majority Leader, made changes to the governor's maps in ramming maps through the Senate yesterday, which received absolutely no Democratic votes. It wasn't bipartisan at all. And even four Republicans voted against the maps. So we don't know where this is going to end up, but this is all 11th hour under the Capitol Dome with nobody really being able to see what's going on or understand what's going on. Political maneuvering, and I think really a last ditch attempt by Robin Voss and the Republican majority to avoid the imposition of maps that the Wisconsin Supreme Court is likely to issue in the next month. So what I find really fascinating is that the map proposal from the governor is actually just one of seven that are before the state Supreme Court. So why would state Republicans reference his maps versus any of the others? Because in order to get the maps signed into law and not vetoed, they have to pass a set of maps. And their calculation is that if they, quote unquote, support the governor's maps, the governor's more likely to sign the legislation that they pass. Of course, that would be, and the governor has said this repeatedly, that would be his maps with no changes. But both the state Senate and now the assembly today are making changes to the governor's maps. But that's the reason. It's, it's so that you can get an agreement that the governor would likely sign off on. Should the bill pass in both chambers, it's already passed in the Senate, but if it passes today in the Assembly, and should Governor Evers sign it, what would happen to the process in the Supreme Court? Would it stop? 
it may not necessarily stop. First of all, the maps that would be passed in the Assembly are different than the maps that were passed yesterday in the State Senate. So it would have to go back to the State Senate for another vote in the State Senate. And I don't know that there's a guarantee that the State Senate Republicans would accept all the changes that the Assembly Republicans made. So there might be division there. But if the process were to proceed, as you mentioned, and say the governor was to sign the maps, then what the Supreme Court has said is that their preference would be for maps that the legislature and the governor come to an agreement on. And if that's the case, then they would likely defer to the maps passed by the legislature and signed and agreed to by the governor. But that's a big if, because Again, the changes that the Republicans made in the state Senate yesterday and are poised to make today in the state assembly, this is not the governor's maps. These are still partisan gerrymandered maps. And if we believe what the governor said yesterday and his spokespeople said, they will sign possibly maps that the legislature passes that are his maps, but not maps that have been fooled with, uh, I would say, or, or changed, and particularly in such a way that would make them less fair and From what we can see and from what we can tell, both the maps that passed in the state Senate yesterday and and the maps that the Republicans and Robin Voss are putting forward today are certainly less fair (laughs) uh, than the governor's maps. I would expect a veto on the part of the governor if this proceeds as things stand now. But we just don't know exactly how it's all going to turn out because no public hearings, no public inspection, and it's all being rushed through very quickly. When you don't have the kind of transparency that's needed for a process like this, usually bad things are occurring. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jay. I appreciate uh, you calling me. That was Jay Heck, Executive Director of Common Cause in Wisconsin. And the time is now 626 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new higher education analysis shows promising data when it comes to college degree attainment in the U.S., which sets the stage for higher earnings for a lot of people. However, there are still racial gaps leaving many behind. Here's Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. The U.S. has seen an increase in the percentage of adults with college degrees, which helps boost their lifetime earnings. But a new report shows the nation still has trouble closing racial gaps for higher education attainment, including in Wisconsin. The Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce says between 2010 and 2020, the proportion of U.S. residents with degrees increased by nearly 7 percentage points, leading to $14 trillion in additional net earnings over workers' lifetimes. However, Center Director Tony Carnavali says even though all racial groups saw positive movement, there was no substantial change in narrowing gaps. What we have here is a race in which everybody is running faster, but no group is really changing their position in the race. He says that undermines efforts to establish racial and economic justice. According to state-level data within the report, Wisconsin mirrored national progress with a 7 percentage point increase in degree attainment. The racial gap narrowed for Latino adults but widened for black adults. If the U.S. wants to get serious about eliminating these disparities, Carnavali says it starts with creating an even playing field in early childhood education and K-12 through schools. Getting from childhood to a good job in the United States is a long walk, and you have to 
focus every step of the way because the way the American system works is that people from less advantaged families begin to lose ground in the early grade. Report authors say if all racial and ethnic groups had the same college degree attainment as white adults, the nation's workers would see an additional $11 trillion in lifetime earnings. That would be on top of the $14 trillion already forecast. The summary included data for associate, bachelor's, and graduate degrees. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. We have all heard it, the whooshing sound of snow being pushed to the side of the road during a winter storm. This week on Madison's Backbone, Jameson and Riley discuss working behind the wheel as a snowplow driver for the city of Madison. Bundle up and listen close to get the scoop about qualifications, equipment classes, and salt usage on roads everyone relies on. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming to Madison's Backbone. I'm here with Jameson, and we're going to talk about what it's like being a snowplow driver. My first question is, how did you get your start? 21 years ago, I started with the city of Madison. I worked for the streets department on the west side of Madison. Got started there just looking for a a job. And part of that job is in the winter, you become a snowplow driver. (laughs) It's a job that takes a lot of training. It took me years to really feel comfortable in uh, what I did. But starting at the streets department, everyone has to learn how to plow in the winter. The rest of the year, I drive a street sweeper. I drive around town at three miles an hour. I pass this studio every Thursday and sweep here, and that's just what I do. And it's just, it's really enjoyable. You get to see a lot of things and you learn every street. So that's what I do basically spring through fall. And then when the snow flies, I get into the big plow truck. So in the wintertime, does that mean like everyone who works for the streets division like gets in a plow and you get going? Yeah, I mean, at alternate times, like right now, we'll run 24 hours a day. And so we run shifts. So we don't have a snowplow for every person, but pretty close. Uh, and it's not just snowplows, but large end loaders, small little tractors, everything that it takes to plow sidewalks and bike paths and all that. So we have uh, a lot of equipment between the two sides of town. Was there an interest at all, or did you just like yeah, fall into so it? Yeah, so I moved back to Wisconsin. My wife and I were living in Germany. We came back to Madison, and I'm just, I was looking for a job. And I applied with the sheriff's department, and I had a friend of ours who just started the streets department, and I kind of scattershot applied places, and the streets department got a hold of me first. And, you know, it's it was kind of tough back in 2003. We were, you know, you had to be a garbage man your first few years, picking up garbage by hand. It was a fun job. I like being outdoors. I have never never really been great at jobs that I'm cooped up in. And so I love the outdoors aspect, good and bad on really rainy, snowy, cold days. It's rough, but uh, I kind of enjoy that 
20 plus years later, I'm still there. I know that you said that sometimes you work like 24 hours or like you're called at strange hours. But like, what exactly does this look like depending on the time of year? When it's, you know, winter snowplow season, you're on call 24 hours a day. So our normal hours are seven to three, Monday through Friday. And then if it's snowing, we'll do what's called a stay on shift where, you know, some guys leave at three. You stay on till 11 o'clock at night. We'll also do midnight shifts where you come in at midnight. You work all the way through three the next morning. On the weekends, we'll work 12 hour shifts. So it's a lot of long hours, 16 hour 18-hour shifts. I just worked a 19-hour shift last weekend. Depends on the weather. Yeah, it's a lot of weird hours, and that takes a lot of getting used to for some guys. Sometimes you don't get a lot of sleep. Sometimes you get done with a 16-hour shift, and you got to be right back. It's just kind of part of the deal. It's for three, four months out of the season, and you kind of have to readjust your family life and personal life to fit this, but we're compensated well in the winter for this for a lot of overtime, so that's helpful. There's breakdowns and mm-hmm. various overtime opportunities, but um, it all depends on the winter. You know, some winters are really lean. We've had some recent winters that were really dry and just cold, and we didn't get a lot of snow plowing done. This winter in particular has been different than that. So yeah. we've had plenty of <laughs> snow plowing. What is the most difficult part about your job? Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, the hours are difficult. The hours can take some getting used to. I used to really enjoy working overnights. As I've gotten older, it's been getting harder to rebound from random overnight shifts. As a snowplow driver, just in particular, just learning tricks. We tell new hires this. You know, I I train a lot of new guys and tell them it'll be five, seven, eight years. You're still learning things. I still run across situations 20 plus years in that I haven't seen before. And you have to be a good problem solver and make smart decisions. And you're also responsible for other vehicles on the road and, you know, trying not to hit anyone else. And that can be the toughest part, really, as you're learning is just figuring out where to put snow, coming into a street that doesn't look like you can make it through, especially here downtown. You get to some of these streets that cars are parked across the street from each other and you're not sure if you're going to make it through or not. Those are the kind of the biggest challenges. Outside of that, it's really an enjoyable job. It's really rewarding, I think, plowing snow for people. Do you think it's like satisfying, like whenever you get that first? It's incredible. It's my favorite part of my job. Like I said, oh. we have the streets department in particular has, I don't know, 20 different jobs we do, you know, from brush pickup to garbage and recycling. And I did graffiti removal for years and now street sweeping. And I love all of those. But snow plowing has always been my favorite part of the job because it is instant gratification. Mm-hmm. And it, you come to a street, it's impassable. You put a little bit of time and effort in and suddenly it's wide open. People can get to where they need to go with the fire truck and the ambulances can get through and it's unlike most other jobs where it's like I, I can see that what I've done has made a difference you know you also come down a street that has been plowed you come down you plow it it looks great but you've just filled everyone's driveways and people are <laughs> Letting yeah. you know how they're unhappy they are with you. You just have to get past that. Because like what I tell a lot of people, you know, they'll come out and want to talk to me and point how much snow has been put at the end of their driveway. And I have to remind folks that the snowplow driver goes home to the same pile of snow at the end of his yeah. driveway. Only I'm there 12 hours later. Finally, I get home and the guy who plowed my street has plowed me in too. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's really satisfying. It's, it's therapeutic, you know, especially you just kind of turn on the music and you're just plowing streets. And I find it to be really peaceful and therapeutic for me. Driving a snowplow would be like my worst fear. <laughs> no, it's great. So, you know, I'll drive, I'll go in in the middle of a storm. That's kind of the other part of this mm-hmm. job is a lot of times you're going in when we're telling people stay off the roads. Mm-hmm. And then I'm driving, I live in Sun Prairie, I'm driving to the west side of Madison to report for work and my wife will be worried, you know, like, stay safe tonight. Like, once I get in the plow truck or the front end loader, or whatever I'm operating that night, I, 
I feel really safe. You know, rare is the time when you lose control in that thing. Yeah, I guess it is so big that like it would be hard to like. They're really heavy, and yeah, you have a lot of weight. Yeah, and you have a lot. You have salt or sand right there on, on the your road. truck, right? <laughs> available. If you do get stuck somewhere, it's pretty easy to get out. Being kind of thrown in with the you know heavy snow can be a little intimidating at first. What is your least favorite part of your job? So I have a lot, you know, like I said, outside of plowing, I drive a street sweeper. That gets a little monotonous because I run the same streets every day, mm, nine yeah. months out of the year. As a plow driver, my least favorite part, I love when the, when we have a storm. You get to get out there, you're plowing fresh snow, it's great. A lot of times you'll still be out there four or five days after the storm. They have you coming in in the middle of the night to just lay sand mm-hmm. on areas that you just laid sand earlier that day. It gets really old. I know it's important, but it gets tiresome because you're just driving around and laying sand behind you. And it's, uh, I don't know, there's no action. And it's, it's hard to stay awake, especially as the temperatures drop and we can just lay sand. That's all we can do. So tell me more about that. Correct me if I'm wrong. After a certain temperature, mm-hmm. the brine or salt doesn't Both, work yeah. anymore. Okay. We have to take these classes every year, these salt usage classes. In the old days when I first started there, we would just pound the salt mm-hmm. all the time, right? We live in a city that's surrounded by lakes. The isthmus specifically, the salt kills the lakes, right? Right. The lakes aren't looking great these days. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to find ways to kind of cut back on that salt usage when we don't have to, uh, which has differing effects. But under 15 degrees, the salt becomes much less effective. Mm-hmm. You have to really lay it heavy. It takes much longer for it to work. And salt is more expensive than sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people above me have to decide when the cutoff is and we just sand it now. And so usually 15 degrees or below her, we just start putting sand down to kind of provide traction. It has differing effects. Sometimes it seems like it's not working, especially if you get you know high winds or you can watch the sand get blown off to the side of the road. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, so we try to use salt if the temperatures are nice, if the sun's out, the traffic beats up that salt, it opens up the roads. And we use those not on every street, but just on the main arteries, bus routes where there's schools, mm-hmm. you know, main drags. We salt, keep those dry. And then the side streets, they just get sanded. You know, we as a department are trying to be more mindful about our salt usage. Mm-hmm. But really, we only make up a very small percentage of Mm -hmm. the salt usage that goes into the lakes, right? A lot of it is private businesses, private contractors that do parking lots. And there's it's a fine line because as a business owner, you have a liability. If I don't clear the ice, somebody slips on it, they're going to sue me as a business owner, right? Right, But then you also come to some spots where the ground is scorched white from so much salt. (laughs) And and that all runs off. Eventually goes into the storm drains that all go to our lakes. It's kind of this fine line of trying. And the city has recently, I believe last year, they started policing contractors and private businesses that overuse salt mm-hmm. um, and saying like, look, you don't need it here. You know, you can, they've been promoting using kitty litter and sand and what have yeah. you. So. Thanks for tuning into Madison's Backbone this week. If you felt like this conversation was left a little open-ended, you would be right. We're going to be back next time with part two of what it's like working for the streets division, but particularly as a snowplow driver, because they're going to be back eight hours later picking up your trash. See you next time on Madison's Backbone. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, what a difference a week makes. 
I said that last Wednesday when I started, and it's uh, certainly germane once again. Last Wednesday, we were 34 degrees colder than the previous week, and this week we're 35 degrees warmer than last week. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be saying that again next week, though, because uh, at least the way the forecast models are looking, this uh, warmer air is going to be upon us for a while. We emerged from 10 straight days of sub-freezing temperatures this past Monday morning. And the uh, January thaw that we've had since then, uh, along with the inevitable uh, melting and slushiness that accompany it, uh, looked to continue for quite a while, I think into February. January, meanwhile, uh, after briefly having boasted an overall temperature deficit, uh, is going to return to a warmer than normal month as of uh, Friday for sure, if not tomorrow already. Have a look at the water vapor image of North America, the continent, and the adjacent Pacific to the west that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage. And you might be able to get uh, some sense, anyway, of what's going on around us, which might be leading to a prolonged warmer period. The first thing to note there is actually the uh, fairly deep upper trough that appears across the center of the country with uh, Wisconsin on its eastern margin. Uh, that kind of makes it look as if significantly colder air might be on its way in from the west. And uh, while the center of the country is slightly cooler than either of the areas east or west of it, uh, coldness is a relative thing, and really no place south of about uh, central or northern Canada is particularly cold at the moment. And the reason for that is the brisk polar jet that, if you're looking at the water vapor image, you can see slicing eastward uh, just to the north, up across uh, southern Alaska, Utah, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories of Canada. Uh, that's currently containing the Arctic air to its north, up towards the pole. We may begin to see a little more uh, deformation in the polar vortex up to the north of that jet, with the cold air breaking southward over the eastern part of the continent as we get out late in this coming weekend and into next week. But it looks to that the cold air will remain uh, relatively far to the east and north of here when that happens. Nevertheless, that uh, passing wave of cold air to our northeast as it exits off the continent may help to induce more significant west-to-east motion and the otherwise rather stuck features that are to the south on the continent behind it where we are. So the weak upper trough to our west may then move over us. That might cool us a little bit, say Sunday or Monday. And after that, the upper ridge that's currently behind the trough out over the west coast is, I think, likely to rewarm us as we get out into the mid and late part of next week. It should be said that our thick snow cover and the very slow melting of it, with our temperatures continuing just to hover a few degrees above freezing over coming days, may mean that any warming we do see later next week is again uh, quite subdued. Uh, and in the meantime, especially over the coming few days, we'll continue to see low-pressure circulations attendant to the southern branch of the jet stream, uh, like the uh, system currently visible to, on the uh, water vapor image over south Texas, riding northeastward through the southern Midwest, as has happened the past few days. That current Texas storm looks to have a little bit more energy and organization than uh, some of its predecessors, so it's possible we may get a slightly more uh, robust rain out of this tomorrow night than the uh, bouts of drizzle and mist that we've mostly seen with the previous systems. This uh, one coming uh, and the one behind it later Saturday and Sunday, or I should say the system behind it later Saturday and Sunday will, I think, miss us to the south going across Illinois at that time. 
So anyway, dark and damp continuing over the coming days, uh, much as the past few have been. Tonight, a shallow near-ground layer of east and northeast winds will continue to be overridden by warmer south-southwesterly winds aloft, so that'll ensure a continuous low ceiling and possibly intermittent drizzle or mist from time to time. Temperatures will hold fairly steady, just around 33 or 34 degrees for the balance of the night. Tomorrow, uh, deepening moisture aloft, especially as we get, say, later in the morning or into the uh, early afternoon, may begin to bring some passing rain showers uh, up into the uh, Madison area, and rain will become increasingly likely later in the day. That will especially be true from Madison and areas south and east. Temperatures will hold in the mid-30s on east and northeast winds coming up to 4 to 8 miles per hour. Some of the uh, higher resolution model soundings for areas at least around Madison and north tomorrow night show enough column cooling as we get on towards midnight or perhaps after to maybe mix the precipitation over to a sleety snow. Temperatures should remain, though, in the uh, 33 to 34 degree range tomorrow night. Friday, precipitation should scatter east early on, and uh, perhaps uh, some lifting of the cloud deck will ensue after that, with temperatures reaching, say, 35 or 36 on northerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Temperatures will drop back a degree or two overnight on lighter, more northwesterly winds. And Saturday will continue mostly cloudy with temperatures in the mid-30s. Uh, perhaps the upper 30s if we can actually uh, lift the deck enough to crack the sun out for a time. I'm not uh, particularly uh, optimistic about that. Northerly winds will increase again a bit more going uh, into and through the day Sunday with temperatures again in the mid-30s. It's currently in the mid-30s down here at the station on Bedford Street. It's 36 degrees. The dew point temperature is 33. Uh, winds are nominally northeast, but near calm at the moment. Uh, we've got an overcast over the station at about 500 feet, and the barometer's at 30.09 inches of mercury and uh, rising slowly. We go now to January 1969. When the Mifflin Community Co-op opened, West High School students staged a sit-in and the police chief worried about anarchy. Stu Levitan has the news from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, January 1969. $300 million. That's the local economic impact a new study says the University of Wisconsin provides, largely due to its $100 million payroll and $22 million in purchases. Staff and faculty own or rent more than 4,600 residences in Madison, and about 21,000 students live off campus. The UW Regents were so upset that the Daily Cardinal printed some obscenities in a recent issue that they commanded the Daily Cardinal Board of Control to appear at its January meeting to explain the plan to make sure that didn't happen again. When the Board of Control doesn't show, the Regents vote 4-3 to three to end the $9,100 annual support the university has been providing to the paper. But after a strong plea of the administration to allow the paper to remain on campus, the regents let the paper stay, provided it pays market rate rent. 
On January 10th, on the recommendation of Chancellor Edwin Young and President Fred Harvey Harrington, the Regents dismiss Ivan Ivy Williamson from the athletic directorship he assumed in November 1955 upon the sudden death of then-director Guy Sunt. Williamson, who came to Wisconsin to coach the football team in 1949, remains professor of athletics in the School of Education. The athletic department projects a $442,000 deficit this academic year for a two-year loss of more than $700,000, largely due to the winless football team, whose former coach, assistant athletic director Milt Brune, is named interim director until a new one is appointed. In movement news, about 150 of West High's 1,510 students stage a sit-in near the school's Ash Street entrance for about two hours on January 28th, supporting the demands of the concerned students of West High School. That group wants to abolish the dress and grooming code, let girls wear slacks to class, bring back the open lunch hour, allow distribution of the student-controlled free press, open a student smoking lounge, hire more minority teachers, and not give any information to the selective service system. West High Principal David A. Spencer says the free press is unnecessary because the school publishes the West High Times and, quote, we do not censor it. A month later, however, Spencer prevents distribution of an issue of the West High Times because he thinks its coverage of the sit-in was, quote, an editorial disguised as a news story. In Law and Order news, six months after Mayor Otto Feske proposed tightening the city's gun registration ordinance, the council on January 9th extends to private citizens the requirement already borne by businesses to notify the police within 24 hours, even on weekends and holidays, of the sale or donation of a firearm, listing its make, model, and serial number. The second piece of gun registration legislation from Labor leader and Southside Alder Harold Babe Rohr, the ordinance is adopted 18 to 4. Strongly supported by Police Chief Wilbur Emery, the ordinance also raises the minimum fine for failure to register from $10 to $250, the maximum from $100 to $500. That same night, the council votes 17 to 5 to empower the mayor to, quote, impose a curfew on all or any part of the city in the event of an actual or imminent emergency requiring all persons in the area to leave, closing any street or businesses, and calling on, quote, regular or auxiliary law enforcement agencies to keep the peace. Prior to the council's action, Milwaukee was the only Wisconsin city to have such provisions. The next day, Chief Emery tells the 32 police cadets graduating from the 14-week training academy, quote, we are in a period of unlawful conduct bordering on outright rebellion and anarchy. And the courts are, quote, building legal curtains around the criminal while restricting the police officer. And on the 29th, Legislative Council Staff Attorney James R. Clouser issues a 45-page report recommending that the Madison Police Department be given control of the university campus because University police are not capable of dealing with increased campus disorder, drug traffic, and violent crime. The year had opened with the hope that construction could soon start on Phase 1 of the Grand Monona Basin Plan, the Great Circular Drum Auditorium. But hope soon fades and then vanishes for good. On January 15th, 
Architect William Wesley Peters tells the auditorium committee that to save money, he's had to eliminate elevators from the seven-story building and cut parking for the 2,300-seat auditorium from 775 spaces to 361 to facilitate traffic movement. The Performing Arts Palace will also lack a sound system. Peters says traveling shows provide their own light and sound, and he suggests a portable system be purchased for use during conventions. On the 15th and 16th, Morris Edelson presents Julian Beck and Judith Molina and their living theater in a two-night engagement for capacity crowds of 500 at the First Unitarian Society Meeting House in Shorewood Hills. Opening night, an intense and often discomforting performance of Bertolt Brecht's The Antigone of Sophocles. At the following night's performance of their notorious Paradise Now, the integrated cast in loincloths and brief halters is upstaged at one point by two women and five men from the audience who disrobe entirely while others swear, argue, spit, and form a pile of nude and nearly nude bodies. The show had to move from Turner Hall when city building inspectors ruled the building, used primarily for gymnastics and other physical education, needed a theater permit, which it did not have. In other counterculture news, the Mifflin Street Community Cooperative opens January 13th at 32 North Bassett Street, with five-day receipts of $130. Initially, the co-op is run by volunteers. To underscore community ownership, the cash register is periodically turned around for members to ring themselves out. And the mayoral campaign year starts on January 4th, when conservative Republican attorney William Dyke, who lost to liberal Mayor Otto Feske by 62 votes two years ago, declares his candidacy. Two days later, Feske surprises City Hall insiders by announcing he's stepping down after two terms. Feske says he made the decision before Dyke's announcement. Liberal Democratic attorney Robert Toby Reynolds, who didn't seek re-election to the council in 1968, is Feske's heir apparent. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan and Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Katie Giorgella is our on-air engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.